summer is officially here. But uh, this summer is quite different to the summers that we're all accustomed to. When we broadcast our last episode, the the trouble around the globe was a full-on pandemic. The news cycles were a daily deluge of what to do, um, what to avoid, all the numbers of deaths, which are still, uh, at, at this moment, as you can see, skyrocketing again. And it was all about who's at high risk, everyone should stay at home, the economic crisis, the closures... The, the, the protests to reopen businesses, let the economy reopen. And in between all of this, a question from the silent majority, where is this all going? But now it seems COVID is yesterday's news. You still hear about it. And over the weekend, it's the news from COVID has started to come up again. But on top of all of the cries to reopen, now it seems like a relay race. COVID has passed on the baton to racism and social justice. And not that these have never been topics of incredible importance and debate in the past. It, it, it just seems like this time, debate wasn't enough. And now, the fight is taken to the streets of our cities and, and our towns across the nation, but not only here in the United States... Like COVID, the cry for racial justice has become a global one. And now, those who were protesting against the quarantine, who were labeled as part of the problem, as anti-science and uncaring. Well, hey, there's a, there's a new sheriff in town. Or, or sorry, that term is now offensive. There's a new warrior in town. And the warrior's battle cry is no justice, no peace. A call to revolution. Take it all down because all of it represents a culturally oppressive power. And now we're told that if we're silent, we're part of the problem. Because see, silence is violence. How, how poetic. So who the heck needs COVID anymore to destroy life and livelihoods? Now... COVID seems to have a partner. It's called social justice. The warrior who seeks for this justice now becomes a self-proclaimed hero, walking the streets, bashing in, uh, in, in windows and storefronts, and even taking out the white demon of oppression. And his uniformed guardian, whose badge is a license to enslave and kill at will. Yes, Batman has nothing on this social warrior. They're taking out the garbage that COVID left behind. <laughs> so, outside of all the sarcasm, I had to get that out. We, we do find ourselves in a world turned upside down. Because everybody, it, it seems that everybody is the enemy. If you don't say anything, you're part of the problem. You're automatically deemed the enemy. Whereas those who were saying something before... We're also part of the problem. So if you were saying something against, uh, you know, businesses being forcefully closed because you couldn't go and work and feed your family, right? You were part of the problem. But now if you're not out there protesting, you're now part of the problem. There's no reasoning 
with this self-righteousness to this self-appointed uh, law of the mob. Because that's what it is. How have we come so far? This was only inevitable because it, it really was a bomb ready to go off with just the right amount of pressure. And 2020 seems to be that right amount of pressure. Along with reason, we've lost compassion. And along with compassion, we've lost decency. Along with decency, we've lost mercy. And along with mercy, dare I say, we have lost justice. There can be no justice in the abandonment of redemption. One cannot cast out evil with evil. And this is where one's understanding of social justice is crucial, especially when a movement claims to an inequity of racial and economic justice or injustice. Can one regulate the value of life to just mere currency to dollars and cents? Because that's what's happening here. How much is enough to quantify the value of my life or of your life? Does, does race grant me or you uh, merit or value? The new moral imperative is black lives matter. And anything said in contrast to this is equal to racism. But the question must be asked, is oppression characteristic of only one color or ethnicity? Because the phrase Black Lives Matter is in and of itself innocuous. It is a truism. It's self-evident. Of course, Black Lives Matter. It's just like the phrase, all men are created equal. And it is this very principle which we have discussed at length on this podcast to help frame the meaning of life. It is the political and cultural ideology of the movement of Black Lives Matter, which itself becomes problematic because it measures the value of life by the group to which you belong to or I belong to. The group or the collective becomes the standard by which the individual is then measured. It divides the whole of humanity into oppressed and oppressor. And depending on the color of your skin, you're either one or the other oppressed or oppressor, regardless of your own actions or principles to align yourself with. In other words, your choice, your beliefs, what you proclaim, how you live doesn't really matter. The color of your skin tells someone else if you're oppressed or the oppressor. And here is where social justice is anything but that. Because it's selective based on selective and subjective morality. You now have to hand over the concept of morality and justice to someone else. To someone else who shares your own DNA. Who's just as human as you are. You and I matter only when the collective say we do. If not, it's off with his head. Maybe it's just me. But I don't see this world as brave, as new, or as just.
Nobel laureate uh, Friedrich Hayek has this to say. Quote, I have come to feel strongly that the greatest service I can still render to my fellow men would be that I could make the speakers and writers among them thoroughly ashamed ever again to employ the term social justice. That's quite the quote. If our value is determined by the creator right, because we're created equal, then any human entity or group that begins to qualify life or the value of life by color or ethnicity is contrived and artificial. It's that simple. This is why any ethical or moral imperative that is not tethered to an already self-evident principle has no foundation. When any person devalues another for any reason, it goes against this self-evident truth, especially and even when it's done in the name of justice. This is why the only moral law that is universal comes from the moral law giver, the creator who makes us all equal in value by our design and intentional creation. Do not murder do not steal, do not covet, represents principles that when violated devalues the individual. This is why when we look at the life of Jesus, we not only are given hope of a future, but his own life ethic informs us of the true meaning of justice. You can see this very thing exemplified in the life of Martin Luther King. And in a recent article written by his niece, Alveda King, she shares this. Quote, as leaders, we must encourage people who are frightened and frustrated. We must stand in solidarity and unit in solidarity and unity as one human race. We must reject the socially engineered concept that our skin colors and ethnicities divide us into racial groups. As my uncle, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said, who was also killed by a white man, by the way. He said, he dreamt of a world where people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Unquote. You know, it's incredible to me how many ministers and religious entities have all of a sudden decided to take up this mantle that this cultural shift in society has made front and center to the point that they have even taken Jesus himself and appropriated his own teachings to fit their own ideological narrative. It's not, it's not, that, that's not only dangerous, it's extremely presumptuous. It's arrogantly presumptuous. Social justice, when you understand it from the point of view of academics and the self-proclaimed cultural revolutionaries, becomes a matter of the tearing down of the current political power, the systems of government and, and, and its economics that represent, according to them, that represent oppression. And then taking these, these by force to then give it to those deemed as oppressed groups. It completely disregards the value of each created individual and does away with the potential that each individual has regardless of his or her ethnicity. Alveda King goes on further in this article to speak about a specific quote that MLK um, that has been spreading 
all over social media in the last few weeks as if to somehow justify rioting and violence as a legitimate response to these supposed injustices. So she says, quote, I am saddened, yet undaunted, that a quote from my Uncle Martin is being taken out of context. The prophet said that violence is the language of the unheard, quote unquote. Some people are calling this an endorsement of violence, she goes on to say, but nothing could be further from the truth. MLK spoke those words in defense of nonviolence. He refused to promote violence as a solution to the ills of society. Martin Luther King preached love, not hate, peace, not violence, and universal brotherhood, not racism. And then she quotes MLK again, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. If only my uncle could still be with us now, fighting nonviolently for justice and against all manifestations of hatred and racism. It's, it's an incredible article that she wrote, and now it'll be posted on, on our podcast um, episode page for today, so you can read it for yourself. It's worth the time to read. And I think this is where most of us are right now. Who will stand? We, 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 we tend to look back at these, at these great leaders who exemplified everything that, that we're calling out for, the, the, this, this, uh, this hope, this optimism, right? So where is the lone hero who will take up that torch that was lit so long ago? Because you see, the torch that MLK lifted up was not a torch that he lit himself, he simply had the courage to take it out of its hiding place so it could shine once again. Because the principles MLK stood on and stood for were these very self-evident principles that come from the Creator. Remember, MLK was a Christian minister, and we can't ignore that. Today's intellectuals and media personalities have seemed to forget or conveniently left out or made of little effect that MLK was a minister of the gospel. He, his worldview, was a Judeo-Christian view. So what he spoke, what he lived, was based on the very life of Jesus himself. So if we long for the spirit and leadership of someone like MLK, we need look no further than the original source— in the person of Jesus himself. The political landscape of Palestine in the first century was one of great instability. Rome had been conquering most of the known world through great war campaigns, and the Jewish nation was no stranger to slavery and oppression. Once again, they had become conquered, living under Roman occupation. The people were overtaxed, they were abused and treated unjustly. All the while, the Jewish nation had been waiting for a Messiah, a lone hero, to be sent and then take back the kingdom which was rightfully theirs. And through the conquering of Rome, this lone hero would rule as king, bringing back justice by destroying their oppressors. It's no wonder the nation was disappointed in this supposed lone hero, this Messiah called Jesus, because he did none of those things in his life. He, fo he, he, he formed no army. 
He didn't campaign for office. He didn't go into the political forum to debate or challenge the powers that be in fact. He told his own people to pay their taxes to this oppressive power. It's no wonder. No wonder that the majority of them wanted him dead. And they got their wish. Here's a man who preaches love, redemption, and reconciliation. Here's a man who heals the sick, serves the poor, the destitute, and the brokenhearted. But but does he go to Jerusalem to forcibly remove the Roman occupation? Does he go to take up the throne? Does he riot and injure the Roman soldiers who had killed his own cousin by beheading? So if you know the story, John the Baptist, who go who comes in and starts baptizing people and preaching repentance and reconciliation through this coming Messiah, he's beheaded unjustly. And when Jesus finds out about it, he says, there was none greater than John, but there's a lot of work to do. We've got to move on. So he doesn't even come to, to debate or dispute the killing of his own cousin. Uh, and, and, and also, he doesn't go into the courts, into the political uh, uh, courts uh, of that day to, to, to debate or to protest against Jew after Jew who had been crucified to instill fear in the populace of what would be their fate if anyone dare resist Rome. Does he set fires and cause rioting in order to draw attention to himself and to his mission? He does none of that. Funny. Neither did MLK. some of you may know if you've been listening to this podcast since its start um, I've had uh, the wonderful humbling experience of being able to work with um, with refugees especially those who have been persecuted for their faith and specifically um, groups of refugees who um, were displaced out of the northern part of Iraq and various areas of Syria who are now living in Jordan as refugees. And uh, I've been able to go over to Jordan uh, several times with, with our team. We've been able to sit down in the, in, in, in the actual homes of these families um, who have suffered so much just because of their belief in Jesus. That's it. And so we, we decided to do something about that. There are other teams uh, doing some great things. One of the uh, uh, the work that um, Mercury One Charities is doing. Uh, they a few years ago in 2015, I had the the honor of attending one of their um, one of their rallies, and it was quite quite a powerful experience. Um, it was held actually in Birmingham, Alabama. And we actually got to walk the Liberty Walk, that march that Martin Luther King did, 
when he was there. We marked the exact, we, 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 we walked and marched the exact route which he took with so many uh, locked hand in hand um, as they were marching against racism uh, and injustice, but in a peaceful and Christian way. And we did the very same thing, and about 20,000 people showed up to this event uh, on 828 back in uh, 2015. And I'll never forget um, how powerful it was to be able to be there. Anyway, uh, Mercury One uh, was uh, instrumental in um, rallying so many people around the country and the world to support many of the Christian refugees who were being ignored by the media and by governments simply because of their faith. And they've been able to save thousands and thousands of lives by extracting them to, to, to countries where their, their, their liberty of conscience and, and, and religious liberty is respected. And so we decided that we'd get involved too. And, you know, we're a small organization. Our, our nonprofit is called Live for One. Uh, and through various concert events, we've, we've been able to travel the country and, and connect with, with people um, in, in, in various communities across this nation. And it's been a joy to do that because everyone, without question, when seeing these stories, hearing the stories of, of the refugees, have stood up to do something. And, and it shows that when, that when, we, that when people are, are challenged by an injustice that is being done in this world, they'll get up and they will do something. And they'll do it out of love and out of truth and out of principle. And that's what it's all about. There's a story of one of the refugee families that I wanted to share with you in context of what we're talking about. We, again, we sat in many, in various homes of, of, of refugees who live in Jordan. And one of the very small um, little apartments that we were able to go to, there was a mom um, who told the story of her daughter who no longer is with us. Her name is Rita, and she was 19 years of age. So um, the story that she told was is that they were living in the northern part of Iraq, uh, and this, this is when ISIS began to take occupation of various areas uh, in the country of Iraq, and they took possession of the city in which they lived, in the northern part of, of the country, and they were given... Only a couple of choices. You either stay and do what we tell you, convert, or leave if you want to, or die. Uh, that, that was the choices that they were given by, by these oppressors. And the story that the mom told us, which was very painful, she says she's, she's every time she retells it, she relives it, of course. Uh, we could all understand the loss of a son or daughter or loved one in any situation like this because of hatred. And so the story goes that uh, one day the family was leaving for work and Rita decided that she was going to stay at home and prepare uh, the meal for the evening and, and just stay home and clean up. And because um, usually she went out, um, as I understand it, she was uh, studying uh, at university, but uh, but on, on this day she decided to stay home. So the parents and the brother left for you know for the day's tasks and activities. When suddenly in the middle of the day, a few masked men came to the apartment complex where she lived and set the building on fire. 
the only reason why they did it was because Christians lived there. Without warning, they just set the building ablaze with Rita inside of it and many others. Well, um, to make a long story short, some neighbors that knew the family, uh, when they saw that the building was completely burned down, they went, of course, to see if, there's, if, there, were any, if there were any survivors. And Rita um, was one of the survivors, but her body had been badly burned. Uh, in fact, when they got to the hospital, they were able to bring her to a hospital. Her body was more than 80% burned. And the neighbors uh, who found Rita's body, barely alive, called her parents to tell the parents what had happened. And you can imagine the utter shock and the distress that this mother and father were feeling. But this is what the neighbors told Rita's parents. You need to leave. You need to get out of here because if you come back, they're going to kill you too. This is the environment in which these refugees, many of the refugees' families, were living in back uh, during the Syrian war when ISIS was taking occupation of various towns and cities. And so the parents, as difficult as a choice as it was to make, they decided to leave and escape, never able to see their daughter again, not able to go in and, and comfort her and be with her at the hospital. The neighbors were kind enough to take Rita to the hospital. They were able to get her checked in. But again, when, when they examined her and saw the condition she was in, her body was more than 80% burned. So now the family decides to escape. And they were traveling through the night, trying to get through borders and trying to avoid any ISIS soldiers. And so um, they, they weren't able to get through um, via cell phone all night long. There was no signal. Finally, in the morning, the parents were able to get through to call their neighbors that had taken Rita to the hospital. And these neighbors, and of course, um, they answered the phone. And Rita's mom asked, what, what's going on? How, how is Rita? What's her condition? What, what's happened? Unfortunately, the news that the neighbor gave to Rita's mom was that she had passed, she had died um, during the night. And of course, you can imagine the devastation of the parents. Who knows, because I'm a parent and many of you who are listening are parents, what, what, would, what would you say in that situation, being on the phone, being, uh, being that you had to escape to, you know, to protect your own life, the life of your other son? Uh, of, of, of your own family, knowing that you had left your daughter behind in this condition, not being able to comfort her, not being able to pray with her, not being able to just to be there to hold her. I can't even imagine the, the utter shock and devastation. Anyway, so she asked her neighbor, well, did she say anything? What, what were her last words? What did she say? That was what she wanted to know. Now, this is the part that got me when I was listening to this, her own mother telling me the story. She, the neighbor said to her, her last words were, I forgive them. Now, when I heard that, I had no words. I, I couldn't even believe it. I forgive them. 
these men, full of hatred, full of prejudice, full of racism, who were monsters, animals, call them whatever you want, who without any, uh, without any thought of the value of life were killing and destroying and pillaging villages and towns simply because people lived there who didn't believe what they believed. They believed in this man called Jesus, the same man that MLK believed in and preached about in his own message. They had no value at all for life. But she said, this 19-year-old girl who had her life before her, instead of clinging, instead of grabbing on to hatred and anger that she would never see her family again, not live out her life, not live out her dreams, she clings to love and says, I forgive them. Would you do that? Would I do that? And it is this very thing, these stories, just like Rita's, that made me realize that when I got back home, that I wasn't, I wasn't the rich one, right? Because we go over, we go over to these countries and we look at the depravity and 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 the way they live and and and, and the poverty, and and then we come back home to our to our nice houses and cars and access to 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 resources and goods that these people don't have. And I think, man, I'm in a better position. But no, when I left after hearing that story, I realized I was the poor one. They were the rich ones. It was that faith, that hope, that love that placed them on another level that this young girl would say on her deathbed, I forgive them. So going back a few thousand years to Jesus, we find a parallel. One that informed Rita's faith and one that informed MLK's faith. Jesus is arrested and questioned in the middle of the night against Jewish law, by the way, without any formal trial or, or for any reason, and then handed over to the Romans for judgment. So here, the oppressed, okay, this is what's fascinating about this, the oppressed now are in league with their oppressors to destroy this man. And this man, Jesus, is condemned by a mob, no less, chanting in loud voices, repeating the same thing over and over in great chorus, kill him, crucify him, over and over this mob chants this. He's, he's sent to be lashed, in such a way as to break open the skin down to the bone. In some cases, when you read the historical facts uh, about crucifixion, the process that happened before they were even taken out and crucified. He's beaten, he's spit on, uh, he's taken to a very public place outside the city gate, where usually they would crucify so it could be seen by the, you know, by the populace. He's nailed to a piece of wood, hand and foot, He's made fun of and ridiculed. And according to the story, uh, this is his response after all of this to his abusers and his oppressors. Are you ready? This is what he says. Father, forgive them. Is that justice? Was it justice that MLK would be gunned down by a hate-filled shooter? 
Or, or what about, again, Rita? Did she get justice? Was it, was it just what they did to her? All three of them, instead of grabbing on to hate and anger, instead choose to cling to love. It would seem that justice has more to do with mercy than it does retribution. One of the most incredible and all-encompassing speeches given by MLK is his acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. I have included a link in our episode page so you can access it and read it for yourself. The whole of the speech deals with the fallen nature of humanity and in particular focuses on three inequities that have always been with us throughout history. So these three inequities that MLK identifies is poverty, war, and racial injustice. There hasn't been a time throughout known history where these have not existed. And the underlying cause? Hate. That's it. At the foundation of these inequities is either the lack of understanding or the willful ignorance of men not acknowledging the natural and inalienable quality given to all created human beings. What MLK would no doubt identify as the nature of sin. He reminds his listeners, actually, in this um, speech about one of the greatest slave narratives found in Scripture in the book of Exodus one ethnic group enslaving another. This isn't just a story of the U.S. or about U.S. history. Because here we find that those who have used the Bible to justify slavery and oppression have themselves been guilty of reading into the morality of the Creator. And whether you believe in God or not is neither here nor there. This has been a journey that we've been taking together and looking at the human story to see how God fits into that. The fact is that in the context of the climate of society we, that, that we find ourselves in now, with so much unrest and calls for justice, MLK becomes a source from which a majority, without fail, call on to give credibility to their own sentiments of injustice. So we can't ignore his own worldview which again is based on a Judeo-Christian worldview, one that is steeped in the existence of a creator who imbues the created with the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and freedom. These rights have been violated at one time or another by human beings of various religious worldviews, creeds, colors, and ethnicities. And in this story of the Exodus, MLK takes us back to when Moses, who was sent by God to the Pharaoh and boldly goes before this world power of his time, has the audacity to demand, let my people go. Now, this narrative to which uh, MLK hails back to is to remind his listeners that the darkness of slavery belongs to the whole human race, not just to one ethnicity. The struggle is more than just gaining one's freedom, but, but it's, it's, it's to seek to change men's hearts from oppression to liberation. Because if you read the story in the Exodus, you'll find that it wasn't just 
the Israelites who marched out of Egypt on that day of freedom. There were Egyptians among them who also marched alongside with them and became part of that great multitude of the free. Freedom is that which belongs to all. But freedom is something that we must choose for. It may be an inalienable right, but if we don't accept it for ourselves, then we certainly won't be able to grant that same right to others. And in other words, it becomes a surmountable challenge to be able to, to change the heart of the one that believes that he or she is oppressed. If you believe that you are not free, then you will never be truly free. The struggle goes beyond that of reform and change in terms of legislation and, and, and party lines and government. It's a metaphysical and spiritual warfare. And MLK understood this well. In his acceptance speech in this address for the Nobel Peace Prize, at the very outset of the speech, he reveals what is at the heart of the matter. After outlining the great achievements made by science and, and, and technology, he then reflects on the condition of the human spirit. So th th these are his words now, part of his um, acceptance speech. Quote, Yet in spite of these spectacular strides in science and technology and still unlimited ones to come, something basic is missing. There's a sort of poverty of the spirit which stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The richer we have become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. We have learned to fly... Uh, uh, sorry, we have learned to fly the air like birds and swim the sea like fish, but we have not learned the simple art of living together as brothers. Every man lives in two realms, the internal and the external. The internal is that realm of spiritual ends expressed in art, literature, morals, and religion. The external is that complex of devices, techniques, mechanisms, and instrumentalities by means of which we live. Our problem today is that we have allowed the internal to become lost in the external. We have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. So much of modern life can be summarized in that arresting dictum of the poet Thoreau, improved means to an unimproved end. This is the serious predicament, the deep and haunting problem confronting modern man. If we are to survive today, our moral and spiritual lag must be eliminated, unquote. So long as the human condition of the soul is depraved and, and seeped in darkness, hatred and oppression, then it doesn't matter how many laws you make and how many statues that you take down or, or, or how many hashtags you post or how many buildings you burn down. The promised land of which MLK spoke of will never be realized. Moses and his people did not rise up in violence in a great military campaign or in retribution in order that Pharaoh would grant his demands. You realize that they didn't lift a finger in their liberation. And whether you believe in the miraculous or not, 
The story of the Exodus proves that faith, hope, and love are the means by which men are set free. Now, MLK goes on to state this very thing when he says, quote, The word that symbolizes the spirit and the outward form of our encounter is nonviolence. The movement does not seek to liberate Negroes at the expense of the humiliation and enslavement of whites. It seeks no victory over anyone. It seeks to liberate American society and to share in the self-liberation of all, of all, again, his words, of all the people. He goes on. Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. Violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. In a real sense, nonviolence seeks to redeem the spiritual and moral lag that I spoke of earlier as the chief dilemma of modern man. Unquote. His incredible ability to deliver words was so incredibly natural and powerful. And while those in public office and those who are activists and the media alike enjoy taking the words of MLK and appropriate them to fit their narrative, the part that is often left out or ignored is the spiritual part of the argument. They seek to, li they, they seek to liberate by oppression but this is no liberation movement at all. It is a cold and calculated revenge. And of course, not all who seek reform and change are militant, uh, or, or do they further any line of hatred and vendetta. That's obvious. Yes, there are good people marching, just as those who marched out of Egypt and marched with MLK in brotherhood to seek towards reconciliation. That word hasn't been spoken of much in the media seeking towards reconciliation and changing the hearts of men. This is the true movement of liberty, not the one who seeks who seeks a, a paying back the other side that they get their comeuppance, right? And whoever they are, with the same hate and defiling of the value of each uniquely created individual, it doesn't matter, white or black, brown or red, we are all created equal and deserving of mutual respect and decency. And in his closing, MLK comes back to this very principle of who we are and where we're going. He quotes from scripture, and he did that a lot. Again, he was a minister. How could he not? He quotes from scripture from the uh, book of 1 John, okay? And this is what 1 John says. Let us love one another, for love is of God. 
and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, following this quote of scripture, MLK goes on to say and conclude the speech that he gives with this. Let us hope that this spirit will become the order of the day. As Arnold Toynbee says, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or or bow before the altar of retaliation. I am not yet discouraged about the future, King says. Granted that the easygoing optimism of yesterday is impossible, granted that those who pioneer in the struggle for peace and freedom will still face uncomfortable jail terms, painful threats of death, they still will be battered by the storms of persecution, leading them to the nagging feeling that they can no longer bear such a heavy burden, and the temptation of wanting to retreat to a more quiet and serene life. Granted that we face a world crisis which leaves us standing so often amid the surging murmur of life's restless sea, but every crisis has both its dangers and its opportunities. It can spell either salvation or doom. In a dark, confused world, the kingdom of God may yet reign in the hearts of men. Unquote. MLK's foundation was none other than the creator. It was not science nor humanism, nor was it political power or prestige. He sought none of that. He only sought for the same thing that God has sought for, the liberation of all mankind. MLK hearkened towards the promised land, towards the kingdom of God. That was the message of Jesus. He lived to set men free, but also promised a world made new. One where death, pain, and hate would no longer exist. Jesus died for that mission of freedom. So did MLK. If if MLK was willing to be imprisoned, persecuted, putting his own life on the line for the freedom of all men, as was the one he followed... The man called Jesus, who did the very same thing in his own life, shouldn't we be more willing to follow him as well? Not just quote MLK. To listen to to this man, Jesus, and, and, and then, dare I say, to believe him? And we've had this conversation before. But with these, th- with, with these things happening in the world, it just seems more and more obvious that there is no other solution. Save this man called Jesus. In fact, he leaves a message for mankind of, of, of a time where we, where we would see strife, chaos, disruption in the form of pestilences, earthquakes, famines, men's hearts failing them for fear uh, because of the roaring of the seas uh, and great suffering to come. In fact, he calls these the signs of his soon return. 
Go to the book of Matthew and read Matthew chapter 24. And even if you've never picked up a Bible, pick it up and read it because that's the same book MLK read from. Could it be that this is what we're seeing now and that just as MLK challenged us all to make a choice either for life or death, love or hate, that this is the real battle and the real struggle for all of us to prepare to cross into the promised land. Look at the world around you right now, right now, look at it. And you tell me if this is the world you want to live in. I sure don't. So we choose love. We choose life. Because the promise of Jesus given by his coming, uh, of, of his soon coming to liberate us is not a joke. We either live for nothing or die for something. MLK lived and died for it. So did Jesus. Perhaps it's time that we stand to live and die for it too. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.